The AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 23, Metrics and Best Practices for Security in DevOps Organizations, featuring Mike Clausen of Contrast Security, Philip Hayes of Tenable, and Temi Edabombo of AWS. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we present a panel discussion with software leaders from Contrast Security and Tenable, sharing guidance and best practices for security in DevOps organizations. Our topic of today, security in DevOps practices. I'm Timmy Adebambo. I am the head of solution architectures uh, for security specialists at AWS. I lead our solutions architect team that helps our customers uh, working with partners and professional services AMs, as well as the engineers at our various customers design well-architected environments for their cloud workloads. I would like to introduce my two panelists here, uh, starting with Mike. Hey, everyone. My name is Mike Clausen. I'm a product director at Contrast Security. Uh, Contrast does application security. I'm primarily responsible for our um, runtime security products, including uh, our runtime security testing vulnerability detection product, Assess, and runtime protection products uh, called Protect. Good to be here. Hi, uh, Philip Hayes. I work for uh, Tenable. We're a cyber exposure company for both uh, on-prem and cloud assets. I uh, oversee our product security, cloud security, and incident response teams at Tenable. Um, As I like to say, I get to do security for a security company. I've uh, been in security ever since I got out of college and uh, obviously really enjoy the industry. So happy to be here as well. Yeah, so uh, that's our panelist. And as I said, today we'll be talking about Dev- DevOps and integrating security into it. Um, so my first question is, uh, what, what is the significance of introducing security into the DevOps processes for modern architecture today? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first stab of that question. It's all about efficiency uh, in security and, and getting the results you need, getting to the sec- security posture you need really fast and, and really efficiently. You know, the, at my company, the way we kind of see the market evolving in terms of DevOps and DevSecOps is that in the past, and we kind of refer to it as generation one, right? A customer would use a, a kind of a scan tool that the AppSec team would run against an artifact or against a repository and would kind of kick it over the wall to the development team. And, you know, the development team would probably not take a lot of uh, you know, effort or would not really prioritize the efforts to review those findings and actually implement fixes to them. Um, and that, that, I mean, that, the efficiency of that process, the velocity at which you're actually resolving findings and vulnerabilities is, is really poor. The next generation uh, sort of involves developer tooling. So being able to give, give your developer a, a CLI tool or a scanning tool that they can actually run themselves and manage the results themselves while still reporting that information to a centralized AppSec team so they can understand the posture. You know, when we get to that point, um, you know, you're getting a little bit more developer buy-in. You're, you're gaining some efficiencies because the developers actually understand the tool they're using, they're understanding the findings, and they can contextualize them. Um, but being able to uh, you know, scan a development environment is still only half a story. Um, being able to uh, you know, take a built artifact and put it through a CI-CD pipeline um, and analyze the security posture from a lot of different perspectives and, and using a variety of tools that kind of collate and kind of can be augmented into an overall understanding of that artifact's risk posture um, and using that information to make it a, a decision, hey, should I 
promote this build to a higher environment, or should I, you know, kill the pipeline and uh, alert the developers that something something's wrong and, and something needs to be fixed? Being able to do that in an automated and efficient way, I think, is is really where um, you know the most sophisticated DevSecOps like shops um, are able to do today, and I think that's kind of where the, the market is starting to to trend. Is, is my perspective. Yeah. Oh, what do you think, Spillet? Yeah. So um, you know, you you asked about the significance and. The efficiency is essentially what translates into costs. And I would say costs and compliance are the big significant drivers of uh, having a security program in your DevOps uh, pipeline. I think Mark was saying it earlier, just from a customer asking a question to that going to the next person to going to the next person, there's a lot of costs and money that happens there. If you are able to kind of take care of any type of security issue or demonstrate compliance by having your security and your, your DevOps processes, then you are, you are saving dollars. You may not be able to see them, but the, the savings in dollars uh, is there. And then um, the significance of having it in there is uh, also responding, which I think we'll probably talk about later, is uh, responding to an issue. Um, if yeah. we don't have security settings or drive, not, we aren't driving security on the DevOps side, then we can't respond to something that is very large or has a very wide impact across our products or our own infrastructure or our own company. So costs, compliance, and obviously the speed to uh, remediate these types of things is the uh, real significant win. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in in stage one or the early days where you chew things over the fence. Uh, That was low level of collaboration. I think integrating security into DevOps also increases the collaboration between the security and the engineering folks that are making the products as they are able to better understand what is required from them and where, where it's going. So uh, I think collaboration is also one of those key things. Uh, as you mentioned, it's not just about throwing things on the, over the fence, but understanding you know, how to do this. I think most people would like to have secure DevOps, right? But in practice, a lot of people don't. And one of the things that we find out is um, the need for speed and agility often becomes one of the biggest challenges in the sense that they want to get the product out and mm-hmm. security is, being, is seen as a blocker. How does an, a well-curated environment handle that need for speed and agility and balance it uh, against uh, the, security challenge, the security requirements that they have? Yep. So I'll take that one. The, uh, yeah. Developing the relationships with we just we just call them the developer community at this point. You know there are engineers, there are research team, but we just call them the developer community. We admittedly slow them down sometimes, and that's okay. We at Tenable we have no option to ship vulnerable products or be on the front page of the paper or the internet because our products were found vulnerable. So our developers, our our developer community, they understand that. And we try to make sure we have that balance between slowing them down, making sure they don't ship a volume um, to production or ship a volume with our, our products. One thing that we do to make sure that there's that balance is we've introduced, uh, you know, here policy is code, here compliance is code. We have exceptions as code. And we have our developers literally make pull requests on all of the exceptions that they want to make. So they have this developer type of interface with security at this point, we have an audit trail of all the approvals, and that experience has really helped us develop that relationship further with the developer community because now we're not getting in the way. We are speaking their language, we are speaking their workflow to actually integrate with their tools to make an exception to security because exceptions need to happen sometimes, and that's also okay. Uh, so when you, when you develop those kind of 
tools and workflow that speaks to the developers, then the culture goes a, a lot further. Mike, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree that uh, speaking the developer language and, and going to where they live makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, a, a previous speaker uh, in, in the last panel said something that really resonated with me. Um, and he mentioned that he was really interested in, in building a product with no UI and, and no front end. And, you know, as a product manager, I, I see one of the biggest opportunities at the company that I work at, which, you know, is all around getting good security results to developers. The best way to do that is, is through integration. So whether you're, you know, integrating with GitHub or something like that and producing additional details in a pull request or whether you're integrating with an IDE uh, and a developer can, you know, play around with their built application with Postman or something or just on local hosts and they can see results in, in the IDE or even with Jira or, or you know, Rally or, or a ticketing system, you know, that's where they are. They're not going to want to log into to my product's UI. That's where AppSec lives. Um, meeting them where they are resolves a lot of, I guess, friction and tension and, and you know, cross-departmental uh, conversations. Yeah, so I, I see a trend there. There's uh, meeting them where they are, uh, you know, speaking their language, um, having infrastructure as code, policy as code, um, things that they're more familiar with will help them integrate into that uh, security in the DevOps process uh, a little faster. So as you practice this and you've taken uh, a lot of these approaches to heart within your organizations, what are some of the common challenges that you see out there and uh, how, do you, how do you overcome it? I think there's kind of three things. Um, the first we kind of already talked about, and that is culture and overall collaboration between security and DevOps. And there's actually a speaker in the first panel that uh, made a really great point around, um, you know, you need to have strong enthusiasts, you need to have good champions. And I was nodding my head vigorous, vigorously because I have some customers that are going to expand for millions of dollars. And I get on and I talk with them, and I know they're passionate about security, and I know they understand the, develop, the developer experience, and I know they're going to be able to implement my product. Um, and I know they're going to be successful with their DevSecOps program when, when they do implement it. And then I have customers that you know bought our product, and it's co- complete shelfware, um, and they just they, they don't get how to speak to the developer. They don't really understand the overall kind of value that it provides. They're not passionate and enthusiastic about the type of lift that you get as an, an organization or enterprise, you know, with a strong DevSecOps program. Um, and you know, those customers they're not going to be successful in implementing a fairly advanced tool. Um, so culture is one thing. Another uh, aspect to consider is the environment, right? Um, so uh, well, another thing I see across my customer base is that we have some customers with really mature just DevOps pipelines. You know, forget about security. Just they wire up APIs to different products and make calls into the pipeline to do various checks. They have various gates and, and quality gates. They have a ton of automation testing with tools like Cypress and Postman and things like that. Um, they automate, uh, you know, performance testing, they, uh, they do all sorts of cool things, and it's all one single pipeline that all developers use. And I'm going to be honest, I, do, I have a few customers like that, not that many. Really, the more common case is that each development team maintains their own pipeline, they take shortcuts because, you know, when you're trying to build a product fast, you're going to have to cut corners somewhere, or it's not going to be on the product, it's probably going to be on the DevOps side, and so, you know, the pipeline isn't exactly what that they want it to be, and they have a whole bunch of debt around implementing a, a good DevOps program, and in those cases, you know, you might want to shore up, you know, your CI, your CI tooling and things like that before you jump into trying to actually modernize security in the DevOps pipeline, right? You need to modernize DevOps before you, you do that, um, and the same goes for culture, as, as we've talked about repeatedly over all three panels, I think. Yeah, um, challenges are, uh, I'll, I'll start with, with uh, kind of what he was saying, is that uh, centralizing the pipelines is always a challenge, and especially with acquisitions. Um, 
We've been lucky enough over the past few years to have uh, acquisitions where you, you, know, you acquire a company, they have their own processes, they have their own systems, they have uh, however they built their product. We need to bring that into the fold of how we run the other you know, 98% of our company and getting them to move while we're still trying to sell the new product and go to market and really ship the, the product in this new pipeline, we, don't, we can't slow that down. So migrating everyone to that centralized DevOps pipeline so that we can take advantage of those tools is definitely a challenge. That's, that's one from kind of an operational uh, standpoint. Another one is that security is not uh, good enough anymore. Uh, we're seeing that um, our biggest customers, um, you know, I think somebody was saying it earlier, you know, we throw SOC 2 at them, we throw IRAP at them, we throw them FedRAMP at them, we say, hey, look at all these things that we've gone through. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to get on, I want to get on the phone. I want, to, I want to see something live. I want to see a, a screen share of, of whatever evidence it may be. Um, that's, that's one thing that's not good enough. Uh, the second thing is that the standard for uh, DevOps and secure DevOps is uh, getting raised as well. Um, you have SSDF that you have to follow. Uh, there is Salsa that is being pushed by Google out in the industry, which has a lot of really um, high requirements that are not cheap to implement and actually are not very well understood. That's starting to become the standard. We're getting asked questions of how we're actually developing the products to that nth degree of detail where, again, everything that we threw at the customer or the partner or the prospect in the, in the beginning is no longer being sufficient. So that is becoming a huge challenge, a huge cost for uh, us to have to respond, and uh, I, I don't see it lightening up anytime soon. Yeah, I think those two core issues you guys brought up are going to be perpetual. I mean, culture is not one that is solved overnight, um, and it's going to take quite a, quite a lot of uh, uh, convincing of organizations to move in the right direction to fix the cultural challenges to this. And that's why we see that ambition to go to secure DevOps is pretty bright, but the actual execution of it has not been as common as, uh, as we would all like out here. Um, it would be amiss if we were to have this entire panel discussion without bringing up the word shift left. Um, it is the most uh, popular boss term when it comes to security and DevOps. I, I, I'll just ask generally, Mike, what, what does that mean to you? What does shift left? When you hear that term, what do you, what do you think of? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, shift left is definitely an important paradigm uh, in the industry. When I gave my initial spiel about, I guess, three generations of, you know, DevSecOps, um, I put shift left squarely in generation two. So I'll touch on a little bit about how you might want to evolve and think about shift left later. But shifting left is all about kind of development empowerment. And to bring up a theme that we've addressed a couple times on this panel is, is meeting the developer where they live, right? Give them tools that integrate with their environments really easily. Make sure the results of those tools exist in their environments. And you'll be able to save a lot of money because you're finding a a lot of vulnerabilities before you even have a built application, before you even go to a QA server, before you even go into a CI pipeline, before you even go to production, right? There's, uh, you know, higher degrees of ROI uh, the earlier you get it, as, as I'm sure most folks understand. There's a lot of interesting things that kind of contrast is doing that goes beyond the, uh, the shift left paradigm, but I'll, uh, I'll touch on those uh, at a later point and yeah. kick it over to Phil. Yeah, um, so I wanted to take the... the comment of being where the developer lives one step further, and that's how we start to think about shift left, is the checks were initially moved left into the pipeline. You have all these security checks, and you have these security gates, and they're all well and wonderful. We want to take that one step further and have it quite in front of the developer where they develop code. I was actually, and this is not necessarily a plug, it is an example. 
I was having a wonderful conversation earlier about GitHub Advanced Security and how they have come a long way and they have pretty much all of the security requirements from a functionality standpoint that you would want in a mature DevSecOps program built into GitHub natively. So now I don't need to go get a sneak and I don't need to get a sonar cube and I don't need to get a this and that and, and plug it into my pipeline. We have it right there in front of the developer as they're committing code. It's doing the checks right there. It either stops them, it gives them the contextual information that is, that is important. That is truly shifting all the way left or shifting in front of the developer, however you want to look at it. And being, having those checks in the pipeline may not always be the, the gold standard anymore. We will get even, uh, even closer. But vulnerabilities still come out. Zero days come out, and that's okay. But what's not okay is that all of that code is shipped to production already, and a zero day comes out. So whatever you've done on the left was all well and great at the time, but now we have all this stuff that is in the runtime environment, in the production environment, that is now a problem and needs to be dealt with from, from your DevOps, with your DevOps program or in your security program. And um, again, we're not partners, but I know that's where um, he lives. So on the runtime side, there's, there's other opportunities there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I kind of consider runtime security as a way to kind of complete the picture uh, when you've already, in the case where you've already implemented uh, kind of a shift left solution. You know, the way we think about it, a contrast, the way that a lot of our customers think about it, is that you should really have good security controls at every stage within the SDLC. So yes, your developers should be doing some some form of you know SCA scanning or you know CVE scanning and development with with their repos, but. Um, once you've built that application, you know you can do kind of deeper analysis because um, there's tools out there like Contrast that can actually analyze the behavior of an app on its runtime. You know you can kind of filter out uh, pre-compiled dependencies and only deal with the, the CVEs that matter in, in third-party libraries. Uh, you can take a closer look at vulnerabilities found in custom code or in, in first-party code, um, which may not you know necessarily map up to CVEs um, because it's not you know it's not a third-party library. You can kind of look at the behavior and ap- application to inform a threat model, right? If, if you understand the application's behavior on its runtime, then you, then you can kind of generate information that could inform kind of a threat modeling phase, uh, you know, when you restart the SDLC for the next version of the artifact. Um, and of course, when you're, when you're in production, uh, you know, protection against zero-day risk, mitigating and minimizing zero-day risk is, is also really important because those, those things, that risk is never going to fully go away in terms of, you know, an incident occurring. Um, so having a mitigation against that is, is really important as well. And that really kind of completes the story and completes the picture, in my mind, of, of really strong uh, security across all, all the phases of the SDLC. Yeah, listening to Mike and Philip, one might think that um, shift left is the holy grail of uh, secure DevOps. Are there any limitations or, alter- or alterations you might want to consider when shifting left? Because from examples that we've seen in the industry, there are people that have shifted left and have not necessarily had the glorious outcome that they would, yeah, due to many things. You guys want to expand on that so we don't leave the audience thinking, let's just go back to our offices, shift left, and all our DevSecOps problems will be solved here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, some of the stuff that I just touched on, I think, you know, shifting left is all around enabling the developer, but you know, implementing something that each kind of each kind of phase in the SDLC really completes the picture and gives you a holistic view of, of what your application is doing, of all the vulnerabilities, you know, pre-compile and post-compile and first and third-party code, the application's behavior and what type of attack vectors that behavior introduces. 
Um, having all that information about your app on its runtime um, really gives you a holistic uh, understanding of that application's risk posture. And so you can, you, you know, you can feel good about what you're good putting in production. And if you don't feel good, you can at least know what you're putting in production. Um, and on top of that, you can implement something that can control, um, control the application runtime behavior in production to the point where you're hardened against the exploits against CVEs, even if they haven't been you know, necessarily identified yet. Right? You can minimize that zero-day risk. Right? So it's all about you know, different measures, different controls at, at different phases, I think. Yeah. Is, look, is it the holy grail? Uh, no. Um, it's, it's an evolving application security problem that you're constantly interacting with the developer community about. Um, but it is t I do believe that it is table stakes these days. A, a lot of the questions that come inbound from an audit or from the customers, the questions they are asking are, are you doing the checks on the left? Or are you doing the checks in the pipeline? So it has become table stakes. Whether you believe it's a holy grail or not, you know, that we don't really have a choice anymore. I think what we can do is have it implemented, and you can show the developers that, look, we blocked everything that you were about to ship to production because it had these security vulnerabilities, and they start to see the value because we blocked them on this entire shift of, of shifting left. And then it starts the conversation of how can we make this even easier, even though you may have friction, I may have blocked you today, and that's, that's okay, to have things that I was talking about earlier about exceptions as code, or maybe changing the thresholds uh, based on our risk profile of what we do block or don't block, or having that conversation of, hey, Phil and team, this really isn't a vuln, or it's not really applicable to our application we still need to ship today. That opens the conversation to continue to develop that culture, and that is what you're constantly chasing as a holy grail. It's not just the initial move to shift left itself. Yeah, and as uh, Mike said, you know, I've been... Uh, the checks around different parts of the SDLC cycle, uh, not just kind of moving everything to the beginning or at one stage or one gate, but actually having the different checks. Uh, so on, on that, on that uh, path, uh, what, what are some of the best practices when it comes to security testing and automating vulnerability management uh, from your experience, Philip? We have found that essentially... <laughs> If you, if you have an application or you have some type of service that you are able to tear down and rebuild as frequently as possible, do it. That rebuild and that redeployment will go through all of your tests and take care of any new vulns that may have come out since they shipped. Um, it'll take care of anything that may have scanned from the night before. And you have a fresh set of infrastructure, application code, essentially the whole tech stack out there that you are constantly redeploying, and that, that has helped from a DevOps point of view. You are essentially taking care of automation to refresh uh, your environment. I think the other things that, um, that make it successful is, is everything we've talked about of you know, speaking the developer's language, getting their workflow, implementing that uh, automation. But rebuilding from scratch is one of the, the things that uh, we have found to be beneficial uh, in our environment. And that's a lot... Easier to do when you're in the cloud, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, Mike? Um, yeah, I think uh, Philip hit the nail on the head. The one thing, one thing I would add on is that uh, if you're doing very frequent redeploys of, of an application, you're doing a different build every night, and you're putting something new into production you know, very frequently, 
um, and you're, you're still trying to maintain good security hygiene, um, and you want developer, and you, and you still are also dealing with the, the challenge of you know managing developers in terms of their buy-in into the program. Um, one thing that I've seen some of my, my customers do is in, in an environment where you're doing very frequent deployments is to have your kind of primary gating consideration be the, the delta between number of vulnerabilities or the delta between you know, vulnerable libraries. Obviously, if you're going to release something with a critical vulnerability, you're going to need to fix that. But in the event of very frequent redeploys, sometimes considering the delta rather than the full backlog of vulnerabilities could be um, a good way to be to be efficient and pragmatic and not uh, not piss off your developers. Great point. All right. So you mentioned something there. You said that the delta between um, the vulnerabilities. So uh, you're kind of taking the conversation to an area I want to talk about next, which is uh, the KPIs. So how do we know that any of this is successful? That was um, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a CIO, one of the largest banks in Israel. And he was telling me he needs his, he needs his uh, development team to ship twice a day, right? They need to ship the product twice a day. The bank, website, and apps need to be refreshed twice a day. Right. For him, that was the metric. I mean, he, he was coming to t- talk about security challenges, but for him, it's like, you guys are not fast enough doing whatever you're doing if my guys can't ship twice a day. What are some of the metrics that should really be considered? Yeah. Um, is it frequency of... Of how quick we can ship, um, frequency of uh, of code production is it the delta and increase of vulnerabilities over time? What are some of the metrics that uh, organizational leaders should actually be looking at to understand whether they are moving forward in this journey? Because clearly it's a journey; they're not going to get to it overnight. But how do they know that they're going in the right direction? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll take I'll take that one first. The um, the easy ones. Um, I would say, are just uh, vulnerabilities that are out of SLA. So I, I, ideally, you have dealt with your engineering <laughs> leaders or your developer community, and you define sets of, of SLAs for low, medium, high, and critical. You know, they can be out there for one day, five day, ten days, whatever it is, and showing them on a dashboard of how many vulns you have, how long they've been out there, and whether they're out of SLA is kind of table stakes, at least in our organization for now, of understanding what those engineering leaders need to focus their time and resources on from a security point of view. That's, that's a start. I also would say that um, it's, a, it's an interesting, evolving uh, buzzword, application security posture management that's out, out there. There's lots of different vendors that are, that are pushing it. Um, Admittedly, uh, we have built it internally uh, custom. Uh, we have kind of just aggregated all of this data from multiple tools. We put it onto a, a custom dashboard, and we kind of do that posture management snapshot. How am I doing as an engineering leader for the product that I own at any given point, and what do I need to focus on? Um, so, yeah, those are my initial KPIs. I hope I didn't steal any. Yeah, no, I think, I think those, uh, those metrics all make a lot of sense. I would... Um... I would kind of uh, double down the idea of understanding the security posture of each application. Um, there might not be a numeric metric or, or like a grade that you might assign to it, but um, I guess the, the kind of way a lot of my customers think about it is that they want to understand how does this app um, map to either my third-party compliance policies that I need to adhere to, or how does it map to my um, overall kind of um, internal security governance policy. Am I am I in policy or am I out of policy? And understanding which apps are are kind of 
good to go in terms of the, the latest version that was put out and which apps need a little bit more attention. Um, so I think you touched on the, the overall value metrics and the overall tracking the, the health of the you know, AppSec or DevOps program, um, but there, there's an also alternative viewpoint that you can take there. What about metrics? Um, what are what people that focus on metrics around um, volume of vulnerabilities or density of vulnerabilities in code uh, as a way to make sure that the developer side, since you're moving yeah. back, right, uh, if you just keep operating on the SLA, yep. well, they keep shipping bad code, and then some guys are just trying to fix that all the time, while the, the initial person just keeps shipping bad code. Yep. You know, do, you, do you believe in metrics around that element, too, of like what is the density or number of criticals uh, that are coming out as the application continues to uh, mature and new applications continue to develop? Is that something that you advise people to look into? Because similar to how you said you've got to put checks across the SDLC, some yeah. folks uh, believe that we should have KPIs across the spectrum as well to hold everyone accountable uh, in that cycle. Yep. Um, I, <laughs> I, think, I think those are important to get to. I think, uh, you know, I feel that we, we Tenable, and, you know, just speaking candidly in front of this audience, I think we are in a great place, but I also just talking to other people, um, you know, some people are struggling still to even get a centralized pipeline or have a secure DevOps program, let alone say, Here's going to be your KPIs for 2024, engineering leaders. You know, good luck and make sure you you meet them, or you're not going to get a bonus or whatever. So it's it's getting the table stakes first that um, probably prevents some of those fruitful discussions from actually okay. happening. Um, I think if you do get there, to answer your question, sorry, um, those are those are of course uh, of value. Um, but it's not the best place to start. Is where, yeah, where you yes, go. yes. Yeah. Um, That's why I'm bringing it up because you can get all kinds of metrics, but there are some that are perhaps not the best thing to drive the change you're really looking for across your organization and build that culture. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And the, the shame game does work sometimes of like, yes, this developer kept on uh, shipping this bad code and there's their engineering manager and you need to go bang on them. And yeah, that, can, that can work sometimes too. Um, but uh, just initial high-level KPIs is, is, an, is an immediate win for any organization that's uh, going through that journey, I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about what does work. Maybe the shame game is not the top game in the set of options, but what does work? When we're trying to build shared responsibility across the developers, operations team, security, what are the best ways for organizations to really build that? Because... You know, from everything we've heard here, there's a cultural element to it. There's collaboration. You know, talking in their language. How do we build that shared responsibility across all the three teams that are responsible? Yeah, I think uh, I think we touched on a couple um, already, so I won't spend too much time talking about those. Right? There's kind of um, the uh, the first one is. Uh, kind of brute force uh, policy enforcement type thing um, when it's a top-down mandate from the CISO. Listen, these are the tools you're using now, and this is how it's going to work, right? That, that happens in some cases, and in that case, if you're an AppSec person, you know, you'd have to deal with the, the grumblings of, of the developers and play therapists, but your tooling is, is going to be in place, and your <coughs> program might be a little bit easier to stand up. <clears throat> um, Another way might be, uh, you know, applying some form of persuasion to the conversation. Um, you know, if you can show a developer that their build was released X times faster or it stayed in production for Y times 
longer because it wasn't exposed to as much zero-day risk or, or something, or, or a new CVE that was you know, previously identified, um, you know, or something like that. If you can give them those metrics, those speak to developers, and that's kind of what they want to see, right? They want to build stuff, they want to solve problems, and they want people to use their solutions to those problems. And if you can show them that a certain security tool helps them do that more effectively, that's, a, that's one way to get buy-in. Um, a third way uh, that may be for... I'm not sure it's a perfect fit for every organization, but um, sort of the gamification of metrics and the incentivization of developers, um, you know, through through kind of novel means by kind of showing showing different teams different metrics and instilling some form of competition. Um, Philip, I saw you kind of shake your head vigorously that one, so I'll let you I'll let you talk more about it. <laughs> Sounds like something to do at Tenable. Yeah, yeah well, it's it's uh, it's what I was talking about earlier is that um, you know you get some of these table stakes in in play and then you start to have conversations is that's kind of a next evolution of like, okay, cool. Everyone's on the same page. We're shipping code when it meets certain thresholds. We're blocking it when it, when it doesn't. And what can we do to make this experience even better? And you know, gamification has, has certainly come up. So that, that's on the roadmap. You, you, you were basically asking of, of one thing to definitely do, and I'll, I'll just say it again, is that we, we were lucky enough that we did have the top-level support. These are the tools you're using, but we also from essentially the beginning of the true secure SDLC program is we are blocking those vulnerabilities. I heard you know, a, a panelist earlier say there was an AppSec vulnerability or something and they cut a JIRA ticket. We haven't cut a JIRA ticket in over four years, luckily, because it just blocks the build for the developers. And that helps from a, a couple different angles. One is they can't ship it, so we don't have as much risk or any risk. The second thing is when you tell that story to an auditor and you actually show the evidence that we are blocking vulnerabilities from shipping to production, we blow through that, that audit or that compliance gig or that pesky customer that is trying to have their mini SOC 2 audit that you said. <laughs> so it, it helps from that, that angle. And then um, ultimately the demonstrating value of the program. Instead of saying your application stayed in production for Y amount of time, I can go to our management and say, we blocked X amount of volumes from even shipping, period. And that resonates a lot further up when you go up the chain, and even the, the board can kind of understand some of those metrics. And we luckily have an opportunity to do that because of the way it's uh, been implemented. All right. Uh, we are out of time. So uh, I would like to thank Mike and Philip uh, for your time and all of the insights that they've shared with us today. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.